This is the greeting from the book of Philippians. You may not have it in your bulletin, but certainly we have it here on the screen. This letter is from Paul and Timothy. I find that interesting. You don't find Paul giving credit to another writer very often. But And Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. But then he goes right back to the personal pronoun. I am writing to all of God's holy people in Philippi who belong to Christ Jesus, including the church leaders and deacons. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Somewhere around the turn of the first century, while Jesus is a young child in Nazareth, Saul is born in the city of Tarsus. He is born into a devout family, and by his late teenage years, he is under the tutelage of a man named Gamaliel, one of the leading rabbis of the era. And just as Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee, Saul is joining the sect of the Pharisees, quite literally the arch enemies of Jesus. Following that trajectory, and absolutely convinced beyond any shadow of a doubt that he is doing God's will, Saul of Tarsus becomes the theological enforcer of Jerusalem. His vocation is to arrest, persecute, harass, and if necessary, kill the earliest Christians because of their heresy, because they had forsaken the laws of God and were following in what he termed an imposter, a crucified Galilean. It is not outside our imagination today to think of Paul in his earliest adulthood as a radicalized cleric, one that you might even see on the news today from the Mideast. He is absolutely convinced that he must exterminate those who have turned away from the real path. But then a fateful day in 34 A.D., As Saul is on his way to Damascus in Syria, the risen Christ appears to him on the road, striking him down, not with vengeance, but with the light of heaven. And Saul is converted. And not only is is he converted, it begins as a total deconstruction of the man. Everything he had believed in, everything he had been doing is called into question. He retreats into modern-day Saudi Arabia. He goes to the desert to make sense of it all. For three years, he remains there. And finally, he goes home. But not to Jerusalem, to Tarsus, the city of his birth. And there he begins to use the name Paul instead of Saul. The Greek name instead of the Hebrew name. Because he feels this compulsion that he will be a missionary to the Gentiles. And so it is in 47 A.D., and we'd always think like this, we think that Paul is converted and goes straight to work. Fourteen years after his conversion, he launches his first missionary effort, the first of many. And Saul of Tarsus becomes St. Paul, apostle to the Gentiles. And for the next 20 years, Paul will traverse the Middle East, Western Asia, and Europe, sharing the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Along the way, he plants about a dozen churches, writes what would become 30% roughly of the New Testament, 
and as a tireless ambassador of Christ, quite literally reshapes the world. We don't have to ask the question, who was the most influential Christian to ever live? The answer is Paul. Largely, we are where we are today. He is the first being to take the gospel into Europe and did literally reshape the world. In the midst of all this, he seemed to have had a favorite group of people, the Philippians. And I know you're not supposed to play favorites, are you? But for Paul, the church at Philippi brought him such joy and such satisfaction that he had to be, they had to be his favorite. If not his favorite, they were at least the group that brought him the least amount of pain and suffering. And sometimes you can gauge your friends like that. He may not be my favorite, but at least he doesn't hurt me as much as somebody else does that I know. There's this cute joke about a man walking through a grocery store, and he's pushing a cart, although in the South we would say it's what? A buggy, thanks be to God. It's a buggy. It's a cart. He's pushing a little child in a buggy. And this little child is a toddler, and he's just screaming at the top of his lungs. You ever seen that in a grocery store? Have you ever been there? He's screaming at the top of his lungs. He cannot be consoled. And all along, the man is saying, Shh, George, shh. Calm down, George. Keep it together, George. Don't cause a scene, George. And this lady there in the produce aisle, I think I cued one just right there. (laughs) This lady in the produce aisle sees what's going on, and she says, You are to be commended for working so hard to keep George calm. And he says, lady, I'm George. His name's Charlie. (laughs) Been there and done that. You You read Paul's letters, and that's sort of what you find. His children, his churches, they're screaming, and they're blubbering, and they're needy, and they're immature. They are inconsolable at times. They are pains in his rear end. And sometimes Paul writes to address that. And sometimes when you read Paul's letters, he's just writing for his own benefit. To try to get it together himself. He said to the Sanhedrin once, and he was a real edgy, fiery guy. He said to the Sanhedrin when he was on trial one time, God's going to strike you down, you you corrupt hypocrites. You whitewashed walls. That's in the court records. You can read it in the book of Acts. To the Romans, he said, you condemn the sins of others, but you are just as bad. You are condemning yourself. God in His justice will punish you. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Starting to sound like your mother. Does this mean nothing to you? Because you are so stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you're just storing up terrible punishment for yourself. To the Galatians, he said, Why do you want to go back and become slaves again? Perhaps all my hard work for you has amounted to nothing. I feel as if I'm going through labor pains. I wish I were with you right now so I could change my tone, but at this distance, I don't know what else to say to you. Sounds sort of like your mom when she's really mad at you, doesn't she? That's the persona he takes on. And don't even get started about some of the things he said to the Corinthians. We have two letters in our Bible 
1 and 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote to them at least four times and visited them multiple times. They were God's problem children. And he couldn't hardly seem how to solve it. And the shining light in all of these churches and all of these people, the shining lights are the Christians at Ephesus, at Colossae, and the Philippians. They brought him joy, but none like the Philippians. You read the book and a number of key words keep popping up over and over again. He uses the word joy more than 20 times. Glory, 10 times. Live in Christ, 40 times. He uses words like contentment, peace, love. It's a be good, feel good, do good treatise. Like nothing else that Paul has written in the New Testament. And all along the way, he just wants them to keep it up. Let the fruit of your salvation continue to bloom and to grow. Stay connected to Christ. Find in Him all that you need for peace, for joy, for satisfaction in this life, for strength, for the elimination of all the things that are tearing you apart. It is in Christ, and in a Christ-shaped, Jesus-formed way of thinking that we can find what we need. And so today, yes, I'm beginning the summer series on the book of Philippians. Credit goes to Cindy McBrayer for naming it. Always on my mind. Learning to think like Jesus. Here is the key verse from the book. It is Philippians 2, 5. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. The King James is maybe even more powerful. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. To borrow another of Paul's phrases from his first letter to the Corinthians, he says, we have the mind of Christ. Learn to think like Jesus. Keep Christ at the center of your thoughts and your meditations. Get out of your mind. I love that phrase when people say, oh, I'm going out of my mind. That's a good place for most of us. We have to get out of our own minds. I mean, do you talk to yourself? Have you really heard the things you say to yourself? It's insane. It really is. And so you really genuinely have to get out of your own mind and find a better way to think. Then you can find a better way to live and find a better way to act. It's worth a moment to consider what Paul meant by the word mind. And it's not necessarily what we mean by the word. We being the West, we are all influenced by Greek and Enlightenment uh, philosophy, and we tend to divide the inner person into two parts. We do it all the time. We tend to divide our inner self into the head and the heart. Oh, those heart people, they're always motivated by their feelings. They wear their heart on their sleeve. They just make artists and poets and songwriters. And then they're the head people. The engineers, they analyze everything. They put their feelings aside for what is actual facts. There's some elbowing going on in the room right now. <laughs> and it's really, it really is a false separation, especially in Hebrew thought. Paul is a Jewish scholar. 
He is, as we'll read later in the book of Philippians, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Jewish spirituality did not and does not to this very day divide the heart and the head. They say that the inner person is a whole being. It is the combination of your emotions, your morality, your spirit, your intellect. And the most often used word in the Old Testament for this inner person is simply the heart. It literally means the kidneys in the Old Testament. The deepest place inside of you. It is the heart that wills. The heart has a conscience. The heart is the absolute center of the human being. And there would be no conflict between head and heart in the Jewish mindset. Never in Jewish thought. It's all the heart, so much so that in the Old Testament, the Old Testament Hebrew never even uses the word brain to describe all that rumination that goes on inside of us. So when Paul writes about the mind of Christ... The attitude of Jesus. He is speaking about all of that. It is the heart of Christ, the soul of Jesus, His moral, His ethic, His actions, His way, His spirit, His direction. He is the engine that moves us and energizes us, causes us not simply to think and feel, but in Him we live and move and have our being. When you have the mind of Christ, you have Him living His life through you. And then using another of Paul's more epic phrases from Galatians, I am crucified with Christ, he said. So I no longer live. Do you know the rest of that verse? But it is Christ who lives His life through me. That is the mind of Christ. Teju Revelachan tells a story about a boy and his father who are walking through the woods. And they come to this giant log that has fallen down in the trail and they can't get around it and the little boy says to his dad you think I can pick that log up and his dad says sure you can if you use all the strength you have you can pick it up so he rolls up his sleeves he gets down in position and he starts to pick up that log and it won't budge he just keeps straining and working until he's exhausted and finally he just sits down on it and he says to his dad you said I could do this and his dad said no I didn't I said you could do it if you used all the strength you have. And you haven't asked me to do anything. And together, they were able to pick it up and move it out of the way. You have to use all the strength that is available to you. Now, Bobby, the slide you previewed for us. From the book of Philippians. I can do I can do, what? Some things? Most things. Sometimes. Everything through Christ who gives me strength. When we're talking about the mind of Christ, we're talking about thinking like Christ. What we're talking about is more than just information in our head. We're talking about actually relying upon all the strength we have at our disposal which goes far beyond us, but to the strength of Christ. It's a mistake that we make over and over again in the church, that we need more information. If we can get more and better information, then we'll get our act together. We need more books. We need more Bible studies. We need more sermons. We need more seminars. We need more retreats. 
No. How many, how many sermons have you heard in your life? How many times have you read the Bible? How many Bible studies have you been to? The failure is not a failure of information. The failure is a failure of trust. We've heard the good old news so many times. The failure is not trusting Christ to do with that in our lives what He says He will do. We continue to operate in our own strength when Christ calls us to trust Him. Proper thinking, which leads to proper living, is not just ruminating on information. I love that word, ruminating. Because most of what we call thinking, now I'm going to get real close to you right here, and you tell me this ain't the truth. Most of what we call thinking isn't thinking at all. It's mental chewing the cud. Now, I'm from a farm, and some of you don't know what that means. But I'll tell you what that means. A cow goes out to graze, or a goat, if you prefer, goes out to graze. And you may not know this, but when a cow grazes grass or hay, that cannot be immediately transferred to nutrients because of the way that cow is gloriously and wonderfully made. And to be honest with you, when I eat green stuff, I don't think it works for me either. Can I get an amen? I didn't evolve to the top of the food chain to eat Brussels sprouts. My doctor isn't here, is he? So when a cow grazes, all that grass and green does not become immediate nutrition. You know what a cow does? He swallows it and it goes into a place in his body called the rumen. And it sits there until it's full. And once the rumen is full, the cow goes, finds a shady place under the tree and sits down and it regurgitates back into his mouth and he chews and he chews and he chews until it's ready to go into the stomach where it can be absorbed and become nutrition for this animal. That's what most of us are doing when we're thinking. We're taking whatever anxiety we have. We're taking whatever worry we have. We're not letting it go. We're not giving it to Christ. We're not even praying about it. We're just letting it roll over and over and over again in our minds, in our hearts, in our head. And guess what? It never fortifies us. It never becomes nutrition for us. Because it's not getting where it needs to go. We're just chewing on it. But nothing is getting resolved. Now, did I get good and close to you? Or do you hear me? I've got to sit and think about this. And it tears us apart. I need to be praying. I've been praying about this every day. No, you haven't. You've been worrying about it every day. But you haven't been praying about it. Because prayer is a release. Prayer is a handing over. We talk about prayer like it's something we're going to get God to do. Are you kidding me? Prayer is not about getting God to do something. Prayer is about letting go of all the things we clutch to, to place it into God's hands. So most of what we call praying isn't praying at all. It's ruminating. There's a big difference there. This is what this 
series on Philippians seeks to address. Changing our minds. Changing our hearts. Changing the ways that we think, the ways that we feel, the way that we pray, and ultimately the way that we act. It's about keeping Christ always on our minds. That we might think, be, act, and react like Jesus. Well, that's a tall order. But that's where it's at. This is one of the most powerful examples of such a thing. Years ago, I told you the story of Dirk Willems. And on the anniversary of his death 500 years ago, I wrote about him again last month. Willems, in this uh, wood sketching, is standing there on the ice. Dirk Willems was an Anabaptist from Holland in the 1500s. Anabaptist is sometimes referred to maybe as an anti-baptizer or a re-baptizer. The descendants of the Anabaptists today are the Amish, uh, to some extent uh, Nazarenes, to some extent Baptist. They had this belief that a person shouldn't be baptized as an infant just because they were born into a church. That a person should be given that right to choose that, to follow Christ. And because of that, during the time period in which they lived in Europe, Catholics, Protestants, and the government all hated them and persecuted them. So in the 1500s, there was a terrible outbreak of persecution, and Dirk Willems got caught up in it. A bailiff is sent to arrest him, to take him to prison, to force him to recant his faith. He had been accused of rebaptizing adults in his home Bible study, a capital offense at the time. The bailiff chases him. He runs out across this icy little pond. He's been hiding in the woods for so long, he's emaciated. He probably weighed 120 pounds. He was able to run across that ice without even causing a crack. The bailiff, who was more well-fed, did not. The bailiff falls through the ice. Dirk Willems immediately stops and turns back and rescues the man who has come for him. And for his kindness, he is put in prison, tortured, will not recant, and is burned at the stake, May 16th. The question that has haunted the Amish, Nazarenes, other groups like this for years has been this question. Why did Dirk Willems turn back? It's a good question. And this is the answer that comes from Dr. Joseph Leike. He says, it certainly was not a rational decision. It was not an ethical choice. It was, I love this word, intuitive. The only force strong enough to take Dirk back across that ice was an extraordinary outpouring of love. And the only love I know like that is the love that is taught and lived by Jesus. This is the spiritual ambition, I think. That when we encounter hate, when we encounter suffering, when we encounter injustice, frustration, to be able to respond with the spontaneous, intuitive, ferocious love of Jesus, to be like Jesus, where we don't even have to deliberate about it. We don't have to think about it. It just happens. Why? Because we have 
the same attitude that Christ had. That we have the mind of Christ. And on this point, I have some very good news. It's not likely that you will ever be put in such a position to have to sacrifice so much. That's the first good news. The better news is this. That if the love of Christ can so shape a person that he would respond like this, just imagine in our ordinary lives how Christ could shape us to be like him.